Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of Atlanta Business Radio. This week, we have our uh, one of our great episodes, episode four of Tuesdays with Corey, hosted by Corey Rick of the Long-Term Healthcare Planning Group. What's up, Corey? Uh, hey, we're, we're ready to go. Appreciate the introduction. Uh, yeah. Another great show of Tuesdays with Corey. Today, we have, we've outdone ourselves today. <laughs> we have Kay Dempsey from the Dempsey Companies. Uh, welcome, Kay. Thank you, Corey. We have Laura Kahn, who has a 30-year experience in banking. We're going to talk today about one of her passions, Jifla. Laura, welcome. Thank you. And Nancy Lewis, who has 30 years of experience in helping companies become better with their leadership and their talent development. Nancy, welcome. Thank you. And also Tony Bennett, who has a number of years involved in uh, marketing automation and, and things of that nature. Tony, welcome. Thanks. We're going to start off today with Kay Dempsey. Uh, a little bit about Kay. Kay is the CEO of the Dempsey Companies, and they're an organization that was founded 30 years ago, and she has done an incredible job of developing unique planning solutions for insurance brokers, investment advisors, and really helps advisors help their clients with life insurance, long-term care, and disability. And the first thing I need to ask you is, how is it possible that you could have 30 years of experience in that? <laughs> you, did you start this when you were three? You're very kind, Corey, and only my hairdresser knows for sure. Mm-hmm. But the, the great, great uh, message, I think, to our listeners is dream big, dream in color, and understand what it is that fills your heart with joy and go after it. So... A long time ago, I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur and uh, worked every step of the way to make that happen. So thank you. How did you decide to start the Dempsey Companies? Was there an event or a series of events or or why did you start the company? You know, it's been said the highest form of learning is your own personal experience. And I watched my parents and my brother lose a 50-year old clothing, retail clothing business because of poor planning. And I found myself on the opposite side of the courtroom with my sister opposing my brother in a will contest. So that was seared in my mind that my life mission should be to help families plan, do good planning toward financial security. So that was the first step. Well, you certainly won a litany of awards and, you know, you've had a lot of experience in the industry. What, what do you like best about what you're doing now? You know, helping financial service professionals place insurance for their high net worth clients, helping businesses stay in businesses, helping employees retain their job, helping individuals and families plan their financial security is what I believe is noble work. It's very, very important work, the education. People need to understand and be educated about financial security. But it's seeing individuals build financial freedom, financial independence. And in our own lives, my husband and I, over the years with our work, have been able to have the freedom to travel, to make our own schedule, but very importantly now to give back to charities. And so that's what I love about this work. You know, one of the things that's always impressed me about you is, you know, looking over your bio and and knowing you for the years, you've certainly accomplished a great deal, but you're very, very humble. And, you know, I I think that that's a, that's a great trait in, you know, our leaders now to be humble. And one of the things that 
has impressed me most about you is that in working on committees and stuff with you is that you really operate from a servant's perspective. You know, really, hey, how can I help you? Is is are usually words when I call you that you, you know, offer to me. Thank uh, you. How did you how did you get that? Or how do you, you know, why is that important to you? Fortunately, I had a wonderful mentor in the insurance business who communicated that it's always serve first. And if you don't have a servant's heart, it's so transparent about what your motives are. So learning to serve and what is it that each of us can do to make this world a better place, to make a difference in in the world. And that's the basis every day that I want to start with. How can I serve? How can I help you? Because it's been said a million times, helping others will far, far enable you to have all your goals achieved. I, I think you're right about that. I think, you know, you, you strike me as someone, you know, one of the things you've, we've talked about is, hey, your, your history, your parents, it, it, it doesn't mean, you know, if you've had a good history, if you've had a good upbringing, that's not a pathway for accomplishment. You know, can you tell us why you share that position? You know, I think it's very important, again, for our listeners to understand that failures can be personal defeats. Certainly, I was paralyzed by personal defeats, but it takes the experience to understand that failure is that much closer to success. And so, you know, learn from your mistakes, but but really welcome those mistakes. Find a mentor because the mistakes are not original. And I think we have to take the ceiling off our brain, as Oprah says, and expand our thinking. Um, Tony Robbins' personal power course was instrumental in changing my life, as was Dan Sullivan's strategic coach. So all those were very important milestones along the way. How many employees do you have uh, at the Dempsey Companies? Just under 20. And we use some part-time, some subcontractors that have worked very well for us. And then uh, a core group of the key team, as I call them. How do you inspire them every day? Well, with the element of mastery today, with the ability to, with technology to master so quickly, it's a challenge to keep a highly motivated group of folks challenged to grow and to learn. But the difference here is they have to learn that relationship building is still face-to-face. No matter how much we can accomplish online, it's still a relationship business. So getting them to understand that, getting them to understand that it's not the technical, it's the relationship. Yeah, relationships are are really important, um, and, and clearly you've built a lot of relationships over the year, over the years. You were recognized recently by the Atlanta Business Chronicle with the Deco Award. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that. That's a significant accomplishment. Well, it, the Business Chronicle again reached out to a number of women to say, "Tell us about your business," and so they recognize some of the top ten leading business women in Atlanta, but. I will tell you that what has happened in Atlanta exponentially, the the women now and the success of women in their own business has grown so exponentially. But I was very pleased and honored. Uh, Jenny Pruitt, a well-known Atlanta realtor, was in that group uh, of women. But very- It sounds like she's in good company. (laughs) 
I, I'm, I'm humbled to be in the same sentence with her. What we do on the show uh, is we talk about all the great uh, contributions that women are making to uh, their communities, to their organizations, and to their industries. And uh, I think we've, we've got a tremendous show here today. Um, Kate, what, how do you decide with everything, with all the brokers you support? Are you in all 50 states with your organization? We are. Um, actually, we're licensed, Corey, in 45 states. There are some states in which we don't have a footprint, but Wherever our customers have clients, we will become duly registered and licensed to do business in that state to help them. With supporting folks with life insurance and with disability insurance and with long-term care, how do you decide how to spend your day? Um, We have to prioritize every single day. And I try to do that at the end of the day about what needs to be done the next day. But in our business, they're, they're... are a number of changing priorities. And that's so important to be able to juggle the priorities. And if you only got one or two things done on your to-do list, it's easy to be frustrated, but welcome it and know that there were other problems, challenges solved. I had a number of coaches that having played, you know, in in high school and college that would just say to me, did you get better today? And it seems like that. that would be, you know, a good outcome for you. But when I think of your organization, I think uh, you, you, you have such a significant footprint in the life component. And I know it would, be diff- it, would be, it would be easy to say, well, you're a life shop, but you're not. You're much more than that. But you've done such an outstanding job with the folks that you've supported with your life Thank insurance. You. And how do, you, how do you get people to understand that you're, just, you're so much more than that, which you clearly are? Well, clearly at uh, cocktail parties, when people ask me what I do, I can clear a room when I say I'm in the insurance business and particularly the life insurance business. But we have a facet of our business where people, despite the bull market, are very, very intrigued with products with guarantees. And so annuities become very attractive to them. Getting individuals, as you well know, Corey, to understand asset protection, what happens if you lose your ability to earn a living? That can be insured, and most people don't understand that. What happens in the event of a long-term care? So many people are in denial about planning for that. The government, not a, the denial is not a river in Egypt, by the way, right. for the listenership. <laughs> that, that's exactly right. So it, it is, it's a broad spectrum of what is the issue that the client has when a financial service professional meets with us? What is the issue? What is most suitable? And what is the priority? Sometimes there are four and five and six issues. You can't solve them all at once. Yeah, begin with, you know, take one step, get better each day. And I think, you know, you've brought so much value to the financial services industry for both men and women with your organization. And, uh, uh, you know, just just tremendous value with what you do for the life folks uh, with disability, with long-term care. And and, and, in bringing multiple options Neutrality seems to be a big theme with uh, the Dempsey companies. Um, Yes, it's very important because we're independent and represent up to 50 of the major, major carriers. We are uh, product and insurance company neutral. It is what is appropriate for the situation. And also, how can we leverage the competition in the insurance market so that Tony gets uh, a, a better offer than maybe initially 
a lesser experienced financial service professional brought her. It's it's the knowledge of how to start the bidding process and when. Well, you've done it. The other thing that I think you've differentiated yourself on is you're very, very effective. And correct me if, if my if in my advanced age, I'm inaccurate <laughs> with this. You could be your back office could be somebody's front office. And you, you've done a tremendous job of once, a, once one of your advisors has a client and they identify a need, you find them the solution that's best for them. Is that fair? It is. We are the, the behind the scenes. We're the backstage. And, and the financial service advisor is the front stage so that we can prepare her, we can prepare him for the complexity, having met with CPAs and attorneys and the design in the plan to come up with the appropriate solution in the placement of insurance. Um, it is a complicated acquisition, and people should not should not in any way diminish the responsibility. No, no, and you certainly have not done that. You've really differentiated yourself there. But it doesn't stop there. You work, you help people with multiple products. You you are neutral, yes, agnostic. Yes. But it doesn't stop there. You've you're a partner in the the brokerage resources of America. Can you tell us a little bit? Can you tell the listenership about why that's meaningful? Well, as a strategic planning step, as an individual entrepreneur, I always want to be independent and own my own business. However, to get the talent, the ideas, the markets, to leverage technology, to leverage the training for our team, uh, the ability to be in a consortium, and I've been in this consortium for over 20 years, and this consortium is across the country representing over 10,000 financial service professionals and doing multi-million dollars of premium a year. That has clout with insurance companies. You need a bigger voice today. So if joining a bigger consortium gives you more leverage and clout for your clients, then it's a good thing. Well, you've done a lot of things to advocate. That's a word that I would use in conjunction with you and your organization, the people that work there. You've uh, all the way from neutrality to you know making sure that you're really leveraging your contacts and your experience. Knowing what you know now, what would you do differently having started the company and having gone through the iterations that you have over the past 30 years? What is very important, as I said earlier, is to find a mentor. I was fortunate to have a mentor who, ironically, at age 83, is still in our business and is doing business with us now. So the student and the teacher have come together again. But to find a mentor, to take, um, to take courses or read books like Strength Finders version 2.0, Quantum leap in in your confidence. Um, I always say, read that book and understand it. To take the courses that I mentioned, Tony Robbins or Dan Sullivan or Vistage. Uh, I think these groups are so important. Or hire a consultant, a coach, if you will, because you need that. Uh, we can only say so much to our spouses or our good friends. I, I would do that very definitely. Is there anything that you personally would do differently? knowing what you know over the last 30 years? I would be less tough on myself because that insecurity of being in the proving stage while yeah. you're building a block uh, can make you tough on others. And when you're so focused on achievement, you miss the joy of the journey. So I would be more in the moment 
and less tough on myself and others. Boy, thank you for that. That was candid. Uh, so if there were a young lady that was thinking about building a financial services empire like what you've done, mm-hmm. what would you tell her? Again, I would say make a written business plan and dream big, dream in color, have audacious goals, and never lose sight of what fills your heart. Find the financial backing and be able to communicate in very simple layman's terms what it is you want to do, what the economic viability is so that that banker or financier understands that. And then make certain that you're tracking your goals. And, you know, doing the same thing is insanity. So seek advice, seek network, learn from people that have gone ahead of you. You've had a tremendous run, Kay. If, if our listenership wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? Is there an email address or a phone number to call? Yes, the letter K, the letter D at DempseyServes.com and 404-604-2068. Kay, you've been a tremendous guest. Uh, you know, great best wishes in the future and, and keep the momentum going. Thank you. Well, next we have Laura Kahn. And uh, Laura comes to us with 30 years of banking experience uh, with SunTrust, Bank of America. But we're going to talk today about one of your passions, Laura. There is an organization called JIFLA, Mm -hmm. Jewish Interest-Free Loans of Atlanta. That's right. Tell us about that organization. So the Jewish Interest-Free Loans of Atlanta is based on the principle in the Old Testament that um, one Jew does not charge interest to another Jew in need. Um, and the principle of um, you know, helping your fellow man and lifting them up. And um, what the Jewish Interest-Free Loan of Atlanta does is uh, we make, as the title implies, interest-free loans. So uh, we look for people who are experiencing some form of financial distress, and we can talk a little more about that. And we um, help them through an interest-free loan. So one of the things we like to say is that it's a hand up, not a handout, and a way for people to get help while still retaining um, their personal pride. What a great thing you're doing. Tell me, uh, how long has the organization been around? Well, one of our challenges is that we are pretty new. So we had our seventh anniversary in 2017. Um, I was an original um, member. This is an, an organization. There are Jewish interest-free loan organizations all around the country and actually around the world. Um, and there's an international kind of consortium. Each one operates completely independently. We do our own fundraising. We even we make our own rules about what kind of loans we'll make and the criteria. But it's a tremendous thing to come together once a year. Um, I went last year, there are, I think, 27 interest-free loans from Melbourne, from Tel Aviv, from Ontario, as well as from about 15 or 20 cities in the United States. So we draw energy from each other. We draw ideas from each other. Um, But to go back to your question, there um, was no interest-free loan fund in Atlanta. It was just kind of had fallen through the cracks. We've got a Jewish community of about 125,000 people. Most cities that size do have this kind of organization. And so some wonderful folks came together and decided to form it. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the kind of founding board members seven years ago. 
is 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 it accurate for us, uh, for me, and for the listenership to call it? Is, is it JIFLA? Is that an accurate term, or is that that's that's the acronym for the Jewish Interest Free Loan of Atlanta? We call ourselves JIFLA because that's a mouthful. Yeah. Okay. So is 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 the organization is it unique to Atlanta? It, it seems like there are other organizations that are similar around, you know, around the country, around the world. Is that right? Right. So um, as I mentioned, so there are about 27 cities that are members of the of this consortium. Um, but uh, each of us does. There are actually uh, funds with millions of dollars. I wish we're not there yet. But um, you have New York, you have Los Angeles, you have Chicago. And these are multi, multi-million dollar funds that some of them have been around for 100 years. Because as I mentioned, it's really kind of a core Jewish principle to offer this kind of service. Um, we are a fairly new one. Um, and each of its cities has their own loan criteria. Um, and that's what we've been developing. It seems like there are, uh, there are assemblies or get togethers of the other, other similar organizations where you get together. How often do you all get together? Just once a year. Okay. Um, and, uh, we always send, we have, we have one part-time employee. The rest of us are all volunteers. Um, our main organization is we have a so we have our executive director who's fantastic and who works about thirty hours a week. She I think we pay her for twenty five. She probably works about at least thirty five. As anyone who's ever worked for a nonprofit is familiar with, um, so she is wonderful and she does our, our loan intake. So if someone um, finds out about our organization, they go to our website, and um, if they want to apply, Nancy will be their first point of contact, either via email or phone call. And she works on the loan intake as well as running the office and doing um, outreach in the community and trying to make sure that all the other Jewish organizations are aware of us because we are very heavily reliant on um, referrals. And frankly, in our seven years of existence, our biggest challenge as a new organization has simply been getting word out to the community that we exist. So that has been a really big focus, particularly for the last two or three years. I became president of the organization three years ago, and um, I made our number one criteria, just let's figure out how to get the word out so that we can um, generate more loans and help more people. That's what we exist to do. How have you been getting the word out? So um, we work with other Jewish organizations. Um, so when somebody calls, there's an organization um, called JFNCS, which is Jewish Family and Career Services, which actually helps Jews and non-Jews. They're a United Way beneficiary agency. Um, so JFNCS is, is a place that a lot of people in the community to go, know to go if they need help. So we work closely with JFNCS. We work with the Jewish Federation of Atlanta, which is the kind of umbrella organization for um, Jewish causes. And then we go to synagogues. We try to meet with the rabbis. We try to meet with the people in the offices who actually know, can some, is somebody coming to them and saying, I can't pay my dues anymore? Um, most rabbis have discretionary funds where if someone really gets in a pickle, they'll go to their rabbi and they'll say, Rabbi, I, I'm embarrassed, but I, I can't make my mortgage payment. My husband lost his job, whatever. So um, our, our primary focus has been other Jewish organizations, um, synagogues, and, um, and uh, places like the Federation. What has been your biggest, you know, your, your best decision that you've made as the leader of the organization? 
Yeah. So it's, it's, it's getting the right people to do a lot of the work. So um, when I took over, there was a fellow who was the founding president and he was a retired gentleman who frankly made Jifla his life. Um, he worked at least 40 hours a week um, and he kind of did everything. But we have some really fantastic volunteers. And so when I replaced him, the first thing I did was put in a formal structure, created an executive board committee, created a committee structure. So we have a treasurer, we have a loan committee, which is in charge of um, processing the loans and the interview process and um, um, setting the loan criteria and all of those things. We have a marketing committee, which has been absolutely critical to that outreach uh, process. And so by having a committee structure, everyone has become more invested. We've gotten people um, to feel like they're making a meaningful contribution. And in doing so, they've really, really stepped up. And what that's allowed us to do is we were making 11, 12, 13 loans a year, which is wonderful. But um, in 2016, we doubled that to 24 Oh, congratulations. Thank you. Well, and with God's help, last year in 2017, we made 31 loans. So that's 31 um, families and individuals in Atlanta who would not have, some of them were, um, took out payday loans and they were paying 18 and 20% plus fees. And as we all know, that's something you can never get out from under. It just drags you down and ruins your life. So some of what we'll do is, is, is refinance payday loans, refinance credit card debt, um, plus just help people. They need dental work. They need um, a down payment on an apartment. We had a couple that was 82 years old, the most delightful, lovely people. They were living with her, um, with, the, with, with their daughter. And all they wanted was to be able to get into their own apartment. And via their social security payments, they were able to pay us back from the $3,000 loan we made to allow them to make a down, uh, you know, their security deposit and first month's rent so they could move out. And on the other end of the spectrum, we had a couple that was an adorable little 22-year-old couple. They had both just finished PT schools. So they were on a wonderful career track, but they graduated in May. Their, their, first, their job and their first paycheck didn't come until August. They had just gotten married. They were living with her parents, and they were like, we really want to get out. <laughs> so it was the same loan, but on the other end of the age spectrum where um, we helped them get into their own apartment, and they paid us back once they started earning their money. How do you use all of the experience that you've picked up over the years with you know, Prudential, 19 years at SunTrust, and now going on 10 years at Bank of America? How do you use what you've learned to help the organization, JIFLA? Yeah, wow. Um, I, you know, every job is a people job, right? So um, it's all about um, respecting people's contributions and uh, being grateful for those contributions valuing people, um, understanding their strengths and getting them to utilize their strengths towards your common goals. So um, I, I would say, honestly, that the jobs that I've always been in, I think a lot of people consider them quantitative and that I do spend a lot of my days looking at financial statements, but really my title is relationship manager. So what I do is I manage large corporate relationships on behalf of the bank um, and I am their go-to person. I'm their person at Bank of America. Um, and I bring all the resources of the bank to these people. So it really is a people job, even though I might spend a lot of my time looking at, you know, income statements. Um, and, uh, I think it's the same thing at Jifla is just, again, having 
respect for people's strengths and contributions um, and uh, helping them be their be their best in, in, in bringing all those resources to the organization. What do you like best about what you do for JIFLA? Honestly, I started on the loan committee and I love the loan committee. It's, it's just so much fun because you get to meet the people, you get to interview them, you get to hear their story. You get that feeling of immediacy of seeing the difference that you're making in their lives. Um, and when, you know, when my kids, I, I, I raised three kids and, uh, well, with my husband, <laughs> great guy. And, um, so when my kids kind of grew up and were ready to leave the house and I really wanted to dedicate more of my time to some charitable endeavors. And, you know, when you're like all the people at this table and you start looking around, everybody's like, oh, you should be on this board and come join this big organization and be on the board. But what I always really wanted to do was really very hands-on work. So the two things that I selected was um, I have um, a, a little sister under the Big Sister of Atlanta program that we've been together now for eight years. Um, and I'll bet uh, that's been rewarding for you. It's awesome. She's a, I'll give a, a call out to Mauricia Stevens. <laughs> she's a junior at Grady High School now. We started when she was nine years old. Oh, good for you. And she's a fantastic girl. Um, and then the second thing that I picked um, was JIFLA because it is very hands-on. You get to see the difference you're making um, in people's lives every day. It must be incredibly um, gratifying to see these people come to you and then you being able to help them, you and your team. At JIFLA. It it really is. Um, you 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 know, and we actually just had our first instance where somebody who was a borrower became a contributor. So oh, that's that was outstanding. Super neat. And and we do have people who've who've come back and gotten a second loan um, because there's a, a lot of people that live on the edge. Yeah. And it's very easy for a lot of us to forget that. Um we tend to live in a pretty comfortable segment of the world. Um, and uh, there are so many people and they're good people and they're hardworking people, but there's medical emergencies and there's job losses and there's a lot of unpredictability in life. And yes. so uh, it's the ability to help people um, pull their lives back together and um, get on their feet. With all your experience that you've had, what would you tell the, the younger version of Laura, knowing what you know now? You know, I was listening to Kay and I was thinking, um, I, I, I feel like I've had such an incredibly blessed life in that I've been able to find something that I feel like works to my strengths. I don't have um, uh, so many of them, but I think that the things that I found, that's not true. Uh, you allow, have a lot of strengths. Well, the, the things that's that clear. I found allow me to play to my strengths. Sure. And, um, so, you know, I remember when I was with SunTrust for 19 years in the last few years before you change jobs, usually there's a reason you change jobs and it was a wonderful, wonderful run. And I, I feel lucky that I, unlike so many bankers, because of all the acquisitions that happened in my field, I was able to do it by choice. And many people didn't have that choice. And, and for the last few years, my husband was like, you know, you should change. You should, you know, look for something else. And I wasn't ready. And then when I was ready, I found what I think is like the ideal job. I absolutely love my job. So I have to say, I think that everything you go through, it just gets you where you are. I, I, there's, I married the right guy. He's supportive. And, you know, I know another thing, Corey, that you ask is what, what advice would you give young people? It's like, have the right life partner. Um, 
have your goals, play to your strengths. You know, you go through high school and you may hate science and love English, but you've got to take science and you've got to take calculus. And But you know what? When you get out in the world, if what you love is English, find something where it uses your passion. Yeah. If you love math, then find something that uses that passion. So I've been very lucky in that. I feel like in my life, I've um, been able to gear, gear my work and my philanthropic activity towards my passions. Well, you've certainly been a, a, a tremendous contributor to the Big Brother, Big Sister uh, organization, as well as JIFLA, and they're fortunate to have you. We appreciate you being on the show. How would our listenership get in touch with you if they needed your services or they need your assistance? Thank you. Well, it's just J-I-F-L-A dot org. So the best way really is just to go on jifla.org. If you are a Jewish individual living in Atlanta or you know someone who is and you need financial assistance or if you would like to volunteer for the organization or donate, you can always donate. We, every dollar that we lend um, is, is from fundraising. And so, um, and I think I'll, one last pitch I'll make is the really neat and totally unique thing about Jifla that most people find very inspiring is that Every dollar of charity that's given to Jifla is recycled. We lend it, people pay it back, we relend it. So you give $1,000 today, that $1,000 is a donation in perpetuity. Uh, thank you so much for your contributions. Thank you. thank you for being on the show. Next, we have Nancy Lewis. Nancy, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Well, you have, uh, you've had an outstanding career of 30 years, and you have an organization called Progressive Technique. Yes. Tell us about what, tell us about how your organization helps companies. I mean, clearly they help with the leadership and talent development, but, you know, how does Progressive Techniques help organizations? Well, we go in and we provide management development training in areas that are challenging for many companies, getting people to work better together, specifically around. Companies have problems at getting people to work together? Just a little. When did that happen? (laughs) It's an ongoing thing. Uh, but specifically around diversity and inclusion, which is a very hot topic. I do a lot around leveraging millennials with the new generation coming in the workplace, helping organizations learn how to manage, or not manage because you don't manage people, you lead people, you manage things. And then around leadership and just the communication. And so with my background, I just have been very blessed to be able to go in and share insight to help them because I've worked as an HR practitioner. I've worked in corporate sectors. So I bring real life stuff to the table. There's no question about that. I remember when I was introduced to you by a previous Tuesdays with Corey, um, you know, guest, and we had lunch. And you told me a story about when you were in HR, and you know, and and some challenges. And I I thought that that was a tremendous story when you were working with some union folks, and and you know, would love to hear. I think the listenership would would benefit by hearing that story because you acquitted yourself very very well there. Well. Uh, the airline will remain nameless. I'll just say that. But I worked for a major airline uh, over 20 years ago. And I was brought in as the HR professional. And it was the first time they had had an African-American person come in in that role. And I was not airline born. So I came in from the outside. So that was a whole new thing. And so I came from the Dale Carnegie background where everybody loves you. They just talk to you and you're just wonderful. That's not reality? (laughs) It wasn't reality here. (laughs) So one of the first meetings I had to go to, they sent me into a crew chief meeting and said, we want you to just to evaluate the meeting and talk to the people and just come back and let us know what happens. 
So when I walked into the room, I was the only female because, again, we're talking about it was about 12 mechanics, the crew chief and his team. And so I sat down and he yelled at me and says, we don't want you in this meeting. We want you to leave. And you left, right? No, I knew instinctively I couldn't leave, but I was like, I am not prepared for this. And I don't know, had I known that I would have to encounter the things I did, I probably wouldn't have taken the job because I didn't anticipate some of the things I had to go through. But I knew instinctively I couldn't leave. So I said, well, if you end the meeting, I will just leave. But if you have it, I will stay. And we sat there in about three minutes of so total silence, looking at each other. And then they're looking at me with 12, 12 sets of eyes of males who are looking at me who are not like real happy. And me looking at them and I'm like, okay, we're going to see. This is going to be a stare down. So after three minutes, about, what, it seemed like an eternity to me, but after about three minutes, he said, we're going to have the meeting. So the meeting took place. It was concluded. When everybody left out the crew chief, I never forget his first name was Jesse. He said, that was a test to see what you're made of. He said, and the word on the floor now is that you got a backbone, you got a spine. I was like, I had to go through all of that to prove that. So it was just interesting, that experience. Uh, I have stories, and I just had no idea stepping into a union environment, the landscape, because that was not my terrain before that. So I didn't understand what I was getting into. Probably I wouldn't have stepped into it had I known that. But God knows everything. So he knew I needed that because as a professional out here working with organizations, I now talk real stuff, not something in a textbook. I've taught yeah. at Georgia State. I've taught theory and academics and how you can walk through something, but that's not real life when someone's in your face in HR. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing that, you know, if I may, it, it took a, a tremendous amount of courage to sit there, you know, when you're in a room and you're clearly outnumbered, they don't want you there and you just decided. And, you know, that resonated with me when we had lunch, when you told me that story, because I thought, oh, this is you're unique in a lot of ways, but that was, you know, really sort of defining. And I think you have all this experience and you have all this value you can bring to companies. You know, you're a national speaker. You're, you know, you have all this HR experience. How do you channel all your talent to figure out exactly what to bring to each one of your clients? I mean, you have a client list that's incredibly desirable here, Delta, Chick-fil-A. How do you figure out how exactly to help each client because you have so much skill. Well, you really want to play to your sweet spot, the things that you really enjoy doing. Because when I left corporate, one of the things I said I didn't want to have anything to do with was diversity and inclusion. I'm like, I'm through with it. I've lived through this. I don't want to have anything to do with this. And Why though? <laughs> if, if I may. Because when I worked for a, a major organization, it was not embraced. It was just something they were checking off a box. And so what happens in so many organizations, they're checking off boxes. People go through a class for four hours, eight hours, and now they're diversified. I'm like, really? That is not true. That's far from the truth. You're talking about cultural changes. You're talking about life changes. You're talking about challenging people's history, what they've known and believed all their life. You can't fix that in four hours. But what I do tell organizations is that we can't fix you or make you want to play in a sandbox together. But while you're here for these eight hours, you will comply with what the organization's mission and vision is, or you need to play someplace else. So that's kind of the, the landscape. So just working with organizations and having seen how it was, when I left the organization, basically the diversity and inclusion initiative just basically fell by the wayside because there was no champion behind me. And so if you don't have the infrastructure in place for not, one person can't carry it. And it has to be a top-down initiative, not bottom-up. What do you like most about what you do? When I do a class, I did a diversity class um, 
few weeks ago, even though we now sometimes even change it from diversity to leveraging differences. Because when people hear diversity, they sometimes just automatically just shut down. I don't want to go. And so there was a gentleman who came to the class and he said, we heard this is a good class. He said, the word on the street is you're pretty good. So I'm going to see for myself. I said, okay. So at the end of the class, he said, you're really good. But what I tell people is that it's a gift that God has given me. I am just the steward of what he's called me to do. So I go and I share, but I keep it real for people. And sometimes that got me in trouble earlier in my career because I was too real. And everything people think they want to hear, they're not prepared to hear. I don't see a lot of gray area in my interaction with you. And I think that's, that's the way I like it. I'm sure that others uh, prefer that. But you do a lot of speaking. Mm-hmm. How, did you, how did you get going in that? And, and, and tell us about that. Well, I started my career working with uh, Johnson & Johnson Company years ago in training and development, doing tra- training and sales support. And I was living on the East Coast. And this was kind of funny because they said, um, you are too direct. I'm like, I'm on the East Coast. How can I be too direct? <laughs> yeah, do you know where you are? Yeah. Uh, this is the New York, New Jersey area. And they said, but you're too direct. I said, well, if you ask me something, I kind of tell you what you asked me. They said, well, people don't always want to hear the truth. I yeah. said, oh, okay. So they decided at that time that they wanted to send me to Dale Carnegie because they needed to refine me so that I didn't, I could do some things differently. And so- Did, what, did it work? Well, the first few weeks I was sitting in the Dale Carnegie class mad because I'm like, I don't need to be here. Then I realized this was a very positive environment and I really loved it. I said, I want to teach this course. And then about three or four years later, I became one of the first African-American Dale Carnegie instructors they had. And so that helped catapult my career because when you teach Dale Carnegie, people respect that. Taught me a lot of tools of how to engage people, how to tell people stuff that they didn't want to hear in a way that was respectful, that was tactful and all that diplomatic that sometimes... I was always dip- diplomatic, but sometimes uh, it might be a little bit uh, assertive or over the top. Carefrontational? No, yeah, care, yeah, carefrontational. I like that. <laughs> yeah. That's an old saying I just made up. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to use that. But it was a point of where I'm just a straight shooter. It's kind of, I'm direct, and I've had to learn how to temper that um, because when I moved to the South, I was so direct early in my career. I said whatever I thought, which was correct but it didn't need to come from me. And I didn't have a mentor to tell me everything you think you don't say. So as I think about that, that was some things that I would have done differently because I burnt some bridges early in my career because I would speak the truth, but people were not prepared for the truth that I was giving them. Uh, So that was just interesting. You've, the challenges that you've had, how have you overcome them and how have you, how have you managed to, to keep you, to keep, keep on keeping on? Well, some of the challenges that I've had to overcome is that I had to just come to grips with the fact that I had to realize that God had made me good enough. Because for a while, I was always trying to, because when you're Black, you always have to go that extra mile because sometimes you want credit, you don't get it. And so you're always fighting to make sure that people know who you are. So I was always, I had to be number one. It was like, I had to be the best, had to be the best. And one of my colleagues one day told me, she said, you can rest now. She said, you, you, you're good enough. She said, you don't have to prove yourself anymore. And that was kind of like, I said, okay, because I was always in that quest because it's just a fact. You just realize it is what it is. It's the reality of the world we live in. Yeah. And so when that happened, I just began to step back and begin to just kind of like ease into it and just realize God made me good enough. And so I'm comfortable in the skin I'm in. And those who like me, wonderful. Those who do not want to be around me, that's okay too. Because everybody you work with, you don't take home to dinner. That's what I share in my diversity workshops. You don't go to lunch with everybody you work with. You don't have to love them, but you have to learn how to respect and work with them. That's a requirement. 
And you do some executive coaching also, mm-hmm. right? Yes, and I get in people's face sometimes in that because I can. That's impossible for me to. That's impossible for me to believe that you. Yeah, do that. it's one on one. So you know we're in a closed space and we can really be very frank and candid. And so it's really good. I enjoy that when people really realize that where they are is not where they have to be, and there's things they can do to elevate themselves to another level by sometimes simply making small moves. How did you decide to go out on your own? And and was that scary? Well, when uh, I'm a baby boomer that had a lot of jobs. I had like about eight jobs. And that is very atypical for a baby boomer. They tend to stay in one job. If I wasn't like, if I didn't like a job, I would tend to just say, you know, I, I need to be looking for something else. So I was always looking for something else. And so my mom would say, <clears throat> you can't hold a job. And I'm like, well, if I'm not happy, I'm just not really the best employee here. So and my last job, I realized that, you know, I really want to be out on my own because when you work in HR, you have to say things to people and you have to tell people things they don't want to hear. You have to fire. You have to hire. Mm-hmm. You have tough conversations. And it's not an easy job. It's a thankless position <clears throat> because people don't come and say you're doing a wonderful job. And so I really realized I need to be my own boss. And so the opportunity presented itself 21 years ago and I stepped away and have had a lot of faith walks, but I would not do it any differently. You published a number of books, and one of the last books you published is Millennials and Beyond, Making the Leap from Texting to Talking. Mm-hmm. So tell us, tell us about that. that, that I, I guess that's a hot topic. It's a very hot topic because in three years, according to some of the research, 50% of the workforce will be millennials. So that's one out of two employees could be millennials in an organization, and most organizations are not prepared for that shift. And so it really kind of came out of doing the diversity and inclusion workshops because the generational aspect became a real issue. It was like people were attacking each other almost in the class. You know, boomers and and Generation X is caught in the middle getting no recognition because everything and everyone's focusing on millennials because there's so many of them, over like about 75, 78 million millennials. So I realized that there was something going on here. So my colleague and I decided to do a practical book on giving people strategies for how to lead millennials in this workplace, but more importantly, giving millennials some business etiquette because there needs some business etiquette that needs to be applied when you come to the workplace. Everything you think, trust me, you don't need to say. And you don't get trophies for Boy, just showing is that, up. Is that ever true? Yeah, and it, you don't get trophies for just showing up. And this is the first generation that got trophies for participating. And that doesn't mean that all millennials are the same, but this was the first group that, they have helicopter parents. They have snowplow parents who fix stuff for them, who call. They call the interviews and say they're running late for their interview. I mean, literally, they go to the interview with their young adults. They show up with them and want to come in the interview with them. They will get in an interview. The millennial will get an interview and sometimes will take a phone call when the interview is asking them questions. So I've heard horror stories. I just can't. It's just shocking to me. The but stuff that I happen. hear, it, it happens. When you, te- when you discipline or correct them and give them constructive feedback, the helicopter parent are calling organizations, the boss, and say, hey, John came home yesterday and said X, Y, Z. Now, again, this is not all millennials any more than it's all Generation X or boomers. Yeah, sure. The reality is that it is happening. It is current. Everywhere I go, basically someone will share, you're right, I had a parent call me the other day. <laughs> or I'll matter be- of fact, the parent showed up <laughs> with them for the interview. I- I'll bet you would be a tremendous resource to organizations that are you know, looking for assistance on that. You started an event about 10 years ago called Transforming Women Entrepreneurs. Walk us through that and and how did that, you know, walk us through the genesis of that. 
Well, a colleague and I, Rhonda Height, we wanted to create a forum for business women, upscale business women, C-suite business women, entrepreneurs, where they could come in a private setting and get education, information, and connect. Because I say people don't network, you connect. So we launched Transforming Women Entrepreneurs 10 years ago because we're actually celebrating March 8th this year, our 10-year celebration of doing the event. Congratulations. Where, thank you so much. Where we bring women together and men actually attend the event. And we just share with topical discussions on any kind of topic you can imagine, branding, marketing, healthcare, balance, whatever the topic is, is relevant for business professionals. We provide it in a form that's upscale, that's classy, that's, I say it's God class because it's, it's a classy event. And it's, so we do that and we do it quarterly. She stepped away after the first year, so I've been doing it for the last nine years. But I love it. If you could give the younger version of Nancy some advice, knowing what you know now, with all of the uh, experience you've garnered, what, what would you tell her? I would tell her to get a mentor earlier because had I had a mentor earlier, as Kay said, I would not have burnt some bridges yeah. that I burned earlier in my career. Yeah. I was correct with what I said, but it didn't need to come from me. But I didn't have anybody to guide me. So I would say get a mentor earlier in your career, someone that you trust and you value that can kind of give you some insight about your next steps. And that would, be, that would have been very helpful for me and realize that you're good enough. And even though as an African-American, you always have to be twice as good. That is real. You have to be twice as good, but you just don't, you just ignore that. You ignore it faster because excellence cannot be denied. If there was a young lady that wanted to start an organization like yours, what advice would you have for her? To take speaking classes, get involved with, um, whether it's Dale Carnegie, I would suggest taking Dale Carnegie courses. You have Toastmasters. You have a lot of things out there. But to become a consummate professional at being able to articulate your ideas in a clear and concise way, that would be critical because communication is key. It's a tipping point. Those who can articulate their ideas and sell ideas and influence other people, that will take you to that next level. So I would say learn how to speak effectively, seek every opportunity, and find someone who's doing that that you can work with and learn from them. Well, Nancy, you've been a tremendous guest. We, we appreciate all of the success and all of the history and all the experience you brought to the show. Thank you for being a guest. If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, uh, our listenership, what number would they call or what email address would you give them? Well, the number is 770-964-964. Five five three three. That's seven seven zero nine six four five five three three. And the email is Nancy at Progressive in. Listen, Nancy at Progressive Techniques Inc. dot com. That's Nancy at Progressive Techniques Inc. dot com. Well, Nancy, thank you so thank much you for so the much. show. Next, uh, we have Tony Bennett. Tony is the uh, Vice President of Sales for Terminus. Tony, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You have had a great deal of success and experience and uh, have experienced what I would say is a meteoric rise, uh, you know, given your, how do I say this? Age. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you're, a, you're a vice president and you've had a lot of success with Salesforce, with SalesLoft. Tell us, tell us about that. That to me is, is just incredible that you're a vice president of a, of a large organization at such an early age? Well, I wouldn't say we're a large organization. Uh, Terminus is still a startup, but certainly we've had really exciting growth. So I think it's the flip side of what Nancy was just talking about, the other side of millennials. Uh, some of us are spoiled brats, but others of us um, 
don't play by the rules that the last generation did. And we we want to achieve as much as we can, as fast as we can. That can make us a little challenging. But um, I would say a lot of it has to do with the fact that I've really committed to working in startups. So if I had taken the path that you know many of these other women had, I certainly wouldn't be in this spot. Um, simply because in a startup, the title vice president doesn't mean the same thing. It may mean it like a Bank of America. But um, I guess what I would say is, Uh, starting in a startup, working in sales and proving my track record for being able to sell software, marketing and sales software, and then uh, working under incredible sales leaders and getting to watch them build great sales organizations have given me a lot of insight, uh, even though I hadn't done that myself before Terminus, to really understand um, how I might kind of mirror um, what others have done. You've had a lot of experience. There's a lot being written, a lot being said about businesses now with marketing automation. You have deep, vast experience with that, with Pardot, Salesforce, with SalesLoft. Tell us about why marketing automation should be a consideration for business owners and folks. Well, I think marketing technology has blown up. There are thousands and thousands of different technologies that a B2B marketer can use to reach their audience. And so I, pretty early in my career, worked for Pardot that did, you know, one of the first forms of lead-based marketing automation. Now I work for Terminus and we are focused more on account-based marketing, which is, uh, if you're not in the space, I suppose, mostly the same thing. But um, the idea being... um, the buying center in a lot of companies has changed from IT to marketing. And so um, it's been exciting being a part of several growing companies that are building incredible software um, for marketers and approaching it from different angles and trying to continually innovate. How can companies uh, better reach their target market and uh, better understand their buyer and, you know, Buyers aren't just sitting by the phone anymore waiting for a phone call. So what are the different channels and mediums by which you can reach the right audience? What did you learn? You know, the, the Pardot experiment is, is really fascinating. For those of us uh, that are uh, advanced in our experience, uh, myself included, you know, what, what is marketing automation? What does that mean? Um, well, there's two ways you could define it. So marketing automation in general is finding ways to automate your marketing efforts. Um, Marketing automation specific to Pardot is a type of product or platform that would allow a company to uh, better understand who's coming to their website and engaging with their content so that they can trigger actions for sales. So if uh, you're a company that sells um, software to financial services companies, you'll want to create some type of content and materials that would attract that audience. And when that audience comes and finds you, um, or comes in Google's terms um, that would indicate they're in the market to buy your type of technology. You want them to find your content to come to you. And once they do that, uh, this software allows you to understand what they're doing on your website and to provide that information to a sales team so that they can be more empowered uh, to reach out to that buyer. So is it fair to say that what that, you know, what that particular uh, solution, Pardot, does is it marries information from the website to your CRM. So you can leverage your time and understand, okay, this, this person, this lead, this prospect has taken these actions. Maybe you give them a score and, and you're able to figure out, hey, what, where in the prospect funnel are these folks? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It can help you to understand who's engaging, how interested they may be. And again, empower that sales team to better know how to reach out. And then the new phase of that, you know, where I am at Terminus, um, I think a lot of this marketing automation software got us so focused on lead-based marketing. A lot of organizations forgot that, sure, there are leads, there are individuals, but really at the end of the day, uh, you're selling to companies, to businesses. And so how do we take all of the data we're collecting about people and individuals and put it together under one account view? So if a company is trying to sell to uh, another organization and an intern comes to their website to collect more data, you might think that's a bad lead because that's an intern. However, if you know that intern comes from a company or organization that is of high value to your company, um, that still may be a lead you want to follow up on. So understanding how all of that lead activity rolls up to accounts that you can better prioritize your time so you're not wasting time and energy and effort following up with leads that are never going to buy your technology. Yeah, leverage is, is a word that I would use for what you're doing, whether it's your experience at, you know, at Salesforce, Pardot, or SalesLoft, or, or Terminus, because you only have so much time. And so how do you advise your folks your clients, your customers on con- building content and building the right content and, and you know, how much content. W- what are your thoughts on that? Well, uh, B2B marketing is really complicated. So it's different for every business, but it's about understanding who you're selling to and what information would be important or appealing to that company and tailoring your message to the right types of companies, but also uh, the right types of buyers. And then finding as many ways as possible as you can deliver that message. And so what we say a lot about ABM, it's about if you can identify best fit companies that you want to do business with, and you can understand the key personas that you want to reach, how then do you create content that's appealing to those individuals? And how do you find the right mediums and channels to get it in front of those people? And it can be through social media, through email, through phone, through... Um, direct mails, all of a sudden popular again with a lot of B2B companies uh, because people don't get mail anymore. Um, so how do you understand the right message and get it in front of that person? And so I don't think there's the a specific answer in how much content is enough. Um, more content is always great, but if you're creating more and more content and it's not meaningful, that's pointless, right? So as much as you can build meaningful content that would resonate with your buyer, Um, You should do that in as many formats as possible. You want to have longer formatted content pieces for people who are super detail-oriented and then shorter things like blog posts for people who just want to read a a quick snippet of something. So what what your organization does at Terminus, an account, you you have company X, and it sounds like you're selling to more than just one person. You might be selling to, you might have to sell the concept to 15, 20 or more people, right? Isn't that what account-based marketing is? Yeah. If you look at stats, you know, according to Gartner, the average technology, and we again sell to B2B companies, so probably a little different than maybe some of the listeners. But um, if you look at the average B2B technology buying decision, it's made by seven to 10 people. Buying decisions and committees keep growing and growing. So you're not going to sell to one person at Bank of America. You're probably going to have a committee of 20 potential buyers. And often as salespeople, um, we're only reaching one, two, three, four individuals in that organization. And so, um, you know, Terminus in particular is trying to empower marketers to help reach a lot of the other stakeholders that aren't on the phone 
speaking with our salesperson, um, how do we still get the message in front of that larger buying committee? I would imagine that concept of account-based marketing helps the salesperson or the sales folks because you're putting content out there. You know who's engaged, you know who is, and I'm sure I'm assuming you have tracking measures put in there. But it it must make that person's time, the the salesperson's time, must be really leveraged. You know, and they're able to put the content out there and figure out. You know, to me, that's it's it's very fascinating that you would be able to engage seven to ten stakeholders with the same messaging, the same information. But what a great thing for the salesperson, yeah, to be able to put that content out. How do you guys measure all that? <laughs> uh, well, there's a couple of ways. So we say engagement is the new form fill. So with lead based marketing, a lot of people are focused just on did someone fill out a form on my website. But if you're trying to reach a VP or C-level decision maker, the likelihood they're going to go to your website, download content, and give you their email address is very low. So what are other ways that you can reach those higher level stakeholders um, and not necessarily require them to give you that information? But then if they're not giving you their information, how do you know if it's working? And so measuring things like engagement, and so not to get too in the weeds, this might be boring for some people, but um, basically if if you can prove as a marketer to your CEO that the content that you've created, or in our case, we serve display ads. So the display ads you're sending out to your audience is getting more people from a certain target account of yours to your website, and they're spending more time on your website, and that's also impacting your email open rates. Those are very powerful engagement metrics that you can say, um, we are engaging the right people and the right accounts at a higher level than we were before. And there's no way that activity is not going to lead to higher conversion rates through our sales marketing funnel and ultimately more revenue for the business. You have had a lot of experience with startups, as we noted at the beginning, outset of our discussion. Why do you have that affinity towards startups? Um, that's kind of a Other than the fact question, that they need, to, but, they need your help. Um, so I started my career in sales for UPS. Um, out of school, I was pre-law. I last minute freaked out and thought, oh my gosh, I can't do more school. I had tons of debt from school. Uh, so I just needed to start my career. And so I kind of fell into sales. I hated it at first. And, and then over time, throughout kind of the first two years, I started to really uh, understand and develop my skill set. And then when I went to part out my first startup, I fell in love with sales because it wasn't about trying to push or pressure someone to buy something, which is what my misconception was, is about really wanting to help someone. And so I saw in at UPS, I was working with a lot of people much older than me. I was, you know, like 23 at the time. Careful. 22 at the time when I first started my <laughs> career. But I was trying to emulate, it was almost exclusively men, and they were in their, you know, 30s, 40s plus. And so I was trying to emulate these older men and say big words and sound smart. And then I realized when I'm just myself uh, and, and just try to connect with people, that's way more powerful and yeah. effective. And so at Pardot, it was a very young crew of people, 20s, uh, really 20s and early 30s, and they were killing it. They were making good money and they were genuinely helping buyers to improve their businesses. And so I just kind of fell in love with it of both the startup world and sales. And I just continued in that path. You know, Pardot wasn't acquired by Salesforce, which is a great company, but with a much larger organization comes a lot more rules and process. Oh, and, sure. 
um, makes it more difficult to move up in an organization. And so um, I left there, got back into another smaller startup and just have really enjoyed the ability to impact change. When you're in a 50 or 100 person company, yeah. the kind of impact you can have is just incredible. Yes. And so at Terminus, this was my first chance to not just be a salesperson to contribute to revenue growth, but to really be a leader in the organization. So um, my husband knows our co-founders really well. He actually made the connection. He went to our co-founders and said, Tony really wants to come build your sales team. And then he came home to me and said, um, you know, our, the co-founders at Terminus would really love for you to come build their sales team. So he kind of <laughs> brokered this blind date. Um, we met and everything just kind of clicked. But, you know, I went from individual contributor as a salesperson to now managing yeah. or, or growing an organization. And so was employee number nine, first on the sales side. And now our sales work has 40 people and I've seen us grow from zero to 10 million in revenue in less than three years. So it has been incredible and humbling and frightening at times to know that you're making decisions that could greatly impact your organization and people's jobs and livelihoods. Yeah. But it's also so exciting to be a part of that um, and to be able to help people and give them jobs and you know support their personal growth. Well, you certainly had a great run uh, and just tremendous experience. And, and I'm certain that Terminus has benefited handsomely by your being there. If you could advise uh, the younger version of Tony seven, 10 years ago, knowing what you know now, what, what advice would you give her? So I don't want to be long-winded, but a lot of the things that these other three women said really resonated with me. Um, I think, Kay, what you said about dreaming in color would be my biggest piece of advice. And the way I've said it too, so I'm a millennial, but I often get calls from other young people who will call me and say, you know, I, I've just been in sales for a year. How do I become a VP of sales next year? And my advice is always, dream big, expect more, but at the same time, you have to be realistic and you have to earn your way to where you're going. You can't ask or demand something you haven't earned. But at the same time, many of us, especially women, aren't vocal and aren't aggressive about you know, pursuing the things that we deserve. And so it's tricky, but find the right balance of dreaming big and not trying to follow in someone else's career path or footsteps. Pave your own way but also you have to be sensitive to making sure that you know you're earning the promotions or the steps that you're asking for and that you're really understanding what is expected of me by this organization in this role and how do I overperform in that um Laura I think what you said about finding the right partner has also been huge um I got married really young um my husband is super supportive um being uh, I think a female in this kind of industry I work a lot of hours Having a partner that's super supportive and encouraging of my career and has never, you know, wanted me to do anything else or demanded that I, uh, you know, stay home and clean the house or anything like that. We're equal partners in, in this thing together. Uh, we don't have kids yet, but, um, you know, having the right partner that can support you in the whole thing, right, is important. And then, uh, Nancy, a lot of what you said about, um, like, the mechanic story and feeling like you have to do twice what other people do, you know, I think for me, being female, but also being younger than most people in my role, I have felt this added pressure I put on myself, which I think is partially real and probably partially uh, something that I put on myself. But I have to do two or three times as well as other people to be respected. 
Um, my entire sales team is older than me, minus one person, and many of them, most of them are males. And so at first, I spent a lot of time thinking and projecting things on myself. What if this person thinks this or that? And finally, I just had to remind myself, I've earned where I am. I work hard. I'm good at this job. And so I just need to be confident in that. And so all those things I would say to young women is, you know, find the right partners and, and friendships and also be aware of what makes you different, but don't let it define you. And if there was a young lady that wanted to be the next Tony Bennett, what would you tell her? Don't do that. Um, I really think if you look at all the most successful people, they didn't try to be anybody else. Right. They completely paved their own way. And um, I think that's the key. You can't take someone else's same career path and make the same thing happen, especially with how fast our world is changing. Um, I just think, you know, per the other advice I just shared, like if you're bold and you pursue what you're passionate about, then good things will happen. Well, Tony, uh, you've had a great run, great success. Thank you for being on the show. If the listenership wanted to get in touch with you, how would they, how would they do that via email and or phone? Actually, social is probably best. Um, on Twitter at Tony Bennett, T-O-N-N-I-B-E-N-N-E-T-T, or on LinkedIn, you can find me, Tony Bennett, uh, at LinkedIn. Uh, I will see a direct message on LinkedIn or Twitter faster than usually anything else. We appreciate it. We've had a great show today. I want to close this up. Kay Dempsey from the Dempsey Companies, thank you. You were a great guest. Laura Kahn from Jifla, thank you for your contributions. Nancy Lewis from Progressive Techniques and Tony Bennett from Terminus. Thank you, ladies. We've had a great show. Everybody have a great day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 